This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Welcome to the best of Not Your Century. That's my fancy name for reruns. Got two episodes for you today. They are two of my favorites. All of these episodes that uh, you're going to be hearing this week, next week, and the week after are my favorite episodes. And a lot of times when I collect episodes together to play for you, there's a theme Today, there's not really a theme. It's just two stories that I really like. They're both from the early part of the 20th century. The first one is the War of the World story, Orson Welles and the radio drama of the H.G. Wells, no relation, H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds on Halloween in 1938. It caused a panic coast to coast, or maybe it didn't really cause a panic coast to coast, but the newspapers said it did. And you'll hear all about that, and you'll hear excerpts from this amazing radio show, The War of the Worlds in 1938. You can hear it on YouTube. You can go find the actual radio program, The War of the Worlds, which if you like old radio or if you like audio drama, you've been listening to fictional podcasts in the in the current time, I highly recommend it. It's amazing. It's like avant-garde radio from 1938. It sounds modernistic today. It was really a brilliant piece of work. So here is the Not Your Century about 1938, the panic over War of the Worlds. October 30th, 1938. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. It's 8 o'clock on a Sunday evening. Time for the Mercury Theater on the Air on CBS Radio. The program is War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells science fiction novel. Everything seemed normal enough at the beginning. Orson Welles, the actor and leader of the Mercury Theater, read a prologue adapted from the book. He talked about how man had long thought he held dominion over the universe, but the great disillusionment had come in late October of the 39th year of the 20th century. That would have put the story a year in the future if you were paying attention. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. His voice fades just as he's citing a statistic about how many people were listening to radios on that fateful night. What follows next is what sounds like a typical evening broadcast of dance music, featuring Ramon Raquello and his orchestra live from the Meridian Room at the Park Plaza Hotel. Then came that news bulletin about the explosions on Mars. Then, back to Ramon Raquello and his orchestra for a minute or two before another news break-in, this time to a live interview with world-famous astronomer Richard Pearson at the Princeton Observatory. He sounded ever so reasonable as he reassured the interviewer that speculation about life on Mars was silly and a report about a massive object hitting the ground near Grover's Mill, New Jersey, was probably just a meteorite. He also sounded ever so much like Orson Welles. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. The show went on like that, bouncing back and forth from the dance music at the Park Plaza to increasingly alarming news reports from Grover's Mill, and then, as the Martians attack, New York City. Speaking from the roof of broadcasting building, New York City, the bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. 
Sharp-eared listeners might have known that there was no Park Plaza Hotel, no Princeton Observatory. The writers, including Wells and John Houseman, later a famous actor, they were forced by CBS's lawyers to change the names of real places like the Biltmore Hotel and the Princeton University Observatory. Listeners also might have heard four separate announcements that this was simply an adaptation of the famous H.G. Wells novel. But especially if you missed the beginning, the broadcast didn't sound like radio drama. It sounded like real radio. And it famously caused a panic. Strike them head on. Lords are turning into flames. Oh, the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars are the gas tanks. Tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. That panic has been exaggerated by history, mostly because it was exaggerated by the newspapers at the time. A lot of people called their local papers and the police looking for information, and the newspapers kind of inferred that there was a panic going on. But even the Chronicle story, the lead story on page A1, which talked about a panic in the headline, mentioned that there were only isolated incidents of people actually panicking. A woman in Indianapolis running into a church screaming that New York had been destroyed. A few New Yorkers carrying their belongings to their cars and heading out of town. New York's finest were unable to get through on the Swamp CBS switchboard, so they showed up at the studio. Mercury Theater actors later talked about physically restraining the cops from bursting in and shutting down the production. In the aftermath of the show, Orson Welles was beside himself, certain that he'd be ruined. But despite the throngs of cops and reporters at the studio, the actors were surprised to find that when they went outside, the streets were normal. Nobody was panicking. We continue now with our piano interlude. The funny thing about that famous War of the Worlds broadcast is that almost nobody heard it. Mercury Theater was a low-rated show. It didn't even have a sponsor. And it was on opposite the NBC Red Network's Chase and Sanborn Hour, featuring Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And that was a big hit. Most of the people panicking, and remember, there weren't many of those, they hadn't even heard the show. They'd heard about it. And they mostly didn't even know they were panicking about Martian invaders. They mostly figured the Germans were coming. H.G. Wells was still alive at the time. And he and Orson Welles met once, in 1940, when they both happened to be in San Antonio and they were brought together for a radio interview. H.G. Wells was 73 at the time. He mentioned the broadcast and he said, Are you sure there was such a panic in America? Or wasn't it your Halloween fun? Orson Welles said, That's the nicest thing that a man from England could say about the men from Mars. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. This has been Not Your Century. Now, usually on these best of Not Your Centuries, I don't make you listen to the standing outro text, but I'm leaving it in here this time because once in a while, I put a little something after the end of the show, and I wanted you to hear that. We now return you to your century. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Orson Welles and his mid-Atlantic accent from 1938 and the War of the Worlds. 
The War of the Worlds radio show was so brilliant, and we're going to transition now to something that was kind of stupid, but really historically significant. We're going back to 1911 and the theft of the Mona Lisa. It wasn't exactly the kind of brilliant art heist that they make movies about. Maybe that's why there's no great movie about the theft of the Mona Lisa. A guy just stuck it under his arm and walked out the front door of the Louvre. But it's a pretty good story. From 1911, the theft of the Mona Lisa. August 21st, 1911, Paris, France. The Mona Lisa has been stolen from the Louvre. You know what the Mona Lisa looks like, right? I don't have to describe it to you. It's probably the most famous painting in the world. But a big reason it's so famous is that it was stolen in 1911. Don't get me wrong, it was famous before that. But one of the most famous paintings in the world meant something different in 1911 than it does now. You've been looking at it all your life. Photos of it online, in magazines, on TV, in movies. You've seen takeoffs and parodies. As soon as I said Mona Lisa, you could picture it. None of that was happening in 1911. Photos were black and white and grainy, and there was no mass media to display them. The Mona Lisa was famous, but that just meant you'd know it if you were interested in art, if you had expensive books that had color reproductions, or you were an art student or something. You and me? Regular schmoes out here wondering when this whole automobile fad was going to pass? We might not know it. A lot of people saw the Mona Lisa for the first time when it was splashed, in grainy black and white, on page one of newspapers all over the world after it was stolen. It was on the Chronicle's front page, but the dispatch from Paris also described the painting. It's a seated woman wearing a dark gown. She has this smile. It wasn't assumed that people would just know it from the name. Noah Charney is an art historian and author, and he told CNN a few years ago that if another one of Leonardo da Vinci's works had been stolen, that would have become the most famous painting in the world. If you've been to the Louvre, or even if, like me, you haven't, you know what a mob scene it is around the Mona Lisa. Well, here's how big a deal that painting was in 1911. It took a whole day before anybody realized it was missing. I said August 21st at the beginning of this episode because that's when it was stolen, but nobody knew it until August 22nd. What happened was an artist had set up his easel to paint a still life in the gallery, and he didn't like that blank space where the Mona Lisa should have been, so he asked a guard. The guard said, oh, well, it's probably up on the roof being photographed. There was a project going on where the Louvre was taking photos of every piece in the museum, and they do that up on the roof for the natural light. It took some asking around, but they figured it out. Nope, it's not on the roof. The museum's security staff, such as it was, sprung into action and found the frame on some back stairs along with the protective glass case that had been over the painting. That's when it was clear. Stolen! The famous Mona Lisa! You know, it's that painting of a woman. She's seated and she's wearing a dark gown and there's this smile on her face. So who stole it? Vincenzo Perugia. He was a handyman who'd worked at the Louvre. In fact, he'd installed that glass case around the Mona Lisa. He and two associates put on white smocks like the one museum workers wore, and they either hid overnight in a storage closet or they walked in with the other employees first thing in the morning. They ditched the case and the frame, and the plan was for Perugia to walk out with the painting hidden under his smock. Well, the Mona Lisa is surprisingly small, but it's painted on wood, not canvas, so you can't roll it up or fold it and it's a little too big to hide under a smock. 
So Perugia draped his smock over the painting, put it under his arm, and walked out the door. It was missing for more than two years. Perugia was probably hoping to sell the painting, but he was surprised by what a big deal the theft was. It was too hot to sell. The gendarmes interviewed suspect after suspect. At one point, they arrested the poet Guillaume Apollinaire, and he pointed the finger at a pal of his, Pablo Picasso. They brought him in for questioning, too, and there were rumors involving J.P. Morgan. All this time, Perugia was just sitting on the Mona Lisa. It was in his boarding house in Paris. Finally, late in 1913, he brought it to an art gallery in Florence. That's where the Mona Lisa was painted. There are various stories about what happened next. Perugia was either trying to sell it, or according to him, after he was arrested, he wanted a reward for the patriotic act of bringing the Mona Lisa back to its home country, 100 years after it had been stolen by Napoleon. Either way, the art gallery called the cops and they arrested Perugia. Napoleon hadn't stolen the Mona Lisa, by the way. He did stick it in his bedroom for a while in 1821. But King Francois I of France bought the painting in 1516 from Leonardo da Vinci, who delivered it himself when he went to work in Francois's court. Still, Perugia got a lot of love in Italy for his patriotism, and he got a light sentence, about a year in jail. He served about seven months. The painting got paraded around Italy a little bit, and then it went back to the Louvre in January 1914. Perugia died in 1925 at the age of 44, and the world's newspapers missed that story. He had been forgotten. Very much unlike the Mona Lisa. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.